The people who have lived in two of the biggest refugee camps in the world likely never anticipated they would be there for generations. They're reluctant guests in a foreign country. Kenya has hosted the Dadaab and Kakuma camps since the early 1990s. And those camps have hosted hundreds of thousands of refugees, mainly from Somalia. Famine and violence have stopped many from going back, and Kenya's refusal to let refugees integrate have kept them in limbo. The camps were meant to be temporary, and the Kenyan government, which has had a tenuous relationship with the camps, is very aware of that. On March 24th, it issued an ultimatum. Kenya has given the UN two weeks to come up with a plan to shut two of the world's largest refugee camps. The government has called for Dadaab's closure before. So what does this latest ultimatum mean for the refugees living there now? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To talk about this story, we spoke with someone who is deeply familiar with one of those two camps. My name is Maulid Hujale. I am a Somali journalist and I've covered extensively the Dada refugee camp in Kenya, where I happen to have lived for quite a long time. Modid is now based in London, but I asked him to tell me about where he grew up. I was born in a beautiful coastal town called Kismayo in southern Somalia. And then after the civil war, we moved to Kenya in the Dada refugee camp close to the border with Somalia. A difficult and bloody civil war in Somalia led to the overthrow of the dictator Siad Barre in 1991. Like many Somalis, hundreds of thousands of them, when they fled, that's where they stayed. So the camp was meant to be temporary for us, but we ended up staying there longer because Somalia was not getting any better. And then that became my home. Dadaab's camps were first built in the 1990s to accommodate Somali refugees trying to leave the violence of their country's civil war. The Kenyan government opened Dadaab camp designed for 90,000 refugees in 1991 as a temporary solution to the civil war in Somalia. So how would you describe Dadaab to someone who has never been there? What is life like? The name Dadaab is very close to me, close to my heart. So the Dab is not just one camp, it's made up of three camps, namely Ifo, Dagahale and Hagadera. They are basically like any other city because of the people who live there and the number of years they have been living there. There are schools, there are markets, bustling economy, thriving business, the host community and the refugees working together. So there's a lot of activities going on there. You would never expect to have taxis in a refugee camp. You would never expect to have cinema. So young people go to the cinema in a makeshift shelter where they watch the European leagues. And even though the internet connectivity is very limited, but there's internet cafe where People go to connect with their friends in the diaspora. You will see people coming together in the coffee shops. Uh, It's just like any other um, city. But Molid said none of that happened overnight. There was nothing when refugees were coming. In 1991, when the camp was first set up, refugees came from Somalia and then later other refugees from 
the region uh, joined from Sudan, South Sudan, um, Ethiopia, Uganda, as far as Rwanda and Burundi. So it's a cosmopolitan city now because for 30 years, refugees made the Dab a functioning city out of nothing. More than 400,000 refugees lived in the camp at its peak. At the height of the 2011 famine, a thousand people were arriving here every day. They've survived not because of any donations or handouts from the aid agencies, but because of the generosity of the refugees who are already here. Though the Kenyan government does not allow permanent structures to be built there, the refugees later on started innovating. Molid said people in Dadaab started using mud to build bricks and create semi-permanent homes. These are an upgrade from the tents made of white tarps emblazoned with the UNHCR logo that also dot the camp. You can see both of these structures in the many aerial photos that capture Dadaab's expansive but tidy grid stretched out over 30 square kilometers. To the outside world, it's just a refugee camp, but inside Dadaab, the people who call it home, it's more than a camp for them. It's become home. Yeah. There are children who live there all their lives and don't know anywhere else other than Dadaab. And just like any other city, there are political institutions that keep things running. There is a well-organized structure of leadership. There is a mayor who is elected democratically by the refugees. Dadaab is said to be the third largest city in Kenya after Nairobi and Mombasa, which is very interesting. But that's not how the Kenyan government views. It looks at Dadaab through the security prism. When Molid says the Kenyan government looks at Dadaab through a security prism, He's talking about their concerns over the armed group Al-Shabaab. I remember when I was there, there was um, a police crackdown. Molid says this was in 2011. That year, the Kenyan government sent troops across the border into Somalia to fight Al-Shabaab after a series of attacks in Kenya. And Dadaab, which is right on the border between Kenya and Somalia, was trapped between that fight. In the name of uh, fighting al-Shabaab, the Kenyan forces cracked down on the refugees. And, and I remember we were running around and they were beating young people. And, and that is when it dawned on me that there's no way out of this place. There's no fence, there's no gate. But when you try to go to the outside, you'll either cross the border 100 kilometers outside of the dab or go to the Kenyan side where there's checkpoints everywhere and police would ask for identification. So that's why many people call it an open prison. Being stuck has affected everything about the residents' day-to-day lives. It has become a city out of necessity because they cannot go out to work, but they have created their own local economy. The other interesting thing about the the lack of freedom is that the refugees, even though they were born there, many of them born by parents who were also born there, they feel more Kenyan than even Somali because in the schools what they study is the Kenyan uh, national curriculum. They sing the Kenyan national on them, but still they're denied the rights to exercise their freedom to go and integrate with the host community, which is very unfortunate. And in addition to being caught in the middle of Kenya and Somalia physically and culturally, they're also caught between the two politically, as tensions between the countries grow. And that could mean the difference between being stuck and being forced out. 
Remember the announcement we mentioned that Kenya's interior ministry made on March 24th of this year? The government has issued a 14-day ultimatum for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, to close down Dadaab and Kakuma refugee camps located in Kenya. The statement alluded to the fact that there will be no room for further negotiations. Catherine Soy, Al Jazeera's correspondent covering East and Central Africa, told us Kenya's interior minister met with the UNHCR, asking for a plan to close the camps. That is what the ultimatum was about. Now UNHCR is to submit a report on a timeline for um, the repatriation of the refugees. We are talking about close to half a million refugees. Some are third generation, and it's not just Somalis. We have refugees from the DRC, uh, from Burundi, South Sudan, and so on. For anyone familiar with Dadaab, this threat to shut down the camp could sound like deja vu. No one expected Dadaab to be open this long, and if Kenya gets its way, it will be closed by November. Government officials have made many threats to close the camp. This particular threat was the strongest. Kenya has repeatedly issued threats to close the camps, but backtracked following interventions from the international community. In 2016, the government also threatened to shut down the camps because of security threats. This was the height of attacks on Kenya by al-Shabaab, the armed group in Somalia. Uh, Authorities here said that uh, the refugees were harboring and helping some of the attackers. Here's some of Catherine's reporting from that time. Al-Shabaab fighters have carried out a series of attacks in Kenya, most notably a university attack where 148 people were killed and another on a popular mall in Nairobi in 2013. 67 people were murdered. Security forces believe that some of the attacks were planned in the camps. I asked this refugee leader if he thinks that the camps have been infiltrated by Al-Shabaab. In fact, the camps were nice. The problem you're talking about is real, but I cannot talk freely and explain the details. That should tell you something. But a Kenyan court blocked the government's plan to close Dadaab in 2017, calling it unconstitutional. Human rights groups challenged that view, calling the government's decision to close the camp discriminatory. And the court agreed, saying the order amounted to collective punishment. Still, the Dab situation has been tenuous, and that status is felt within the camps, as Maulid says. When I heard about the New Year's recently about the Kenya's decision to again close the camps. It wasn't uh, a surprise to me. I wasn't shocked because I knew this is something they have done before. And when I talked to the people who still live in the dark, they share the same feeling. When this kind of news comes out, that uncertainty disrupts the whole livelihood and the whole local economy. They are frustrated, they are shocked, but it's no longer breaking news to them. Maudid connected us with a resident of Dadaab, who told us more. My name is Dek Abdullahi Ali, who lives in the Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya. If I talk about what Kenyan government said about the closure of the camps and the pressure and frustrations it caused in the people, it's really very high. And Dek says these pressures aren't just coming from the Kenyan government. A lack of funding from international donors means there's less support for the refugees' material needs. In the camps, people don't receive enough supports from the donors because the food ratio was reduced. And the only thing people have now is peace and education. People are hopeless, idle, and they have no say 
about what Kenya government said about the closure of the camps. Modi, do you and I go way back because the first time that I can remember interviewing you was in 2016. And it was on this very same issue. The Kenyan government had issued a call to close Dadaab. And they have done so again and again after a series of attacks from Al-Shabaab and Kenya. So why does the government keep pushing to close the camp? And why hasn't it happened yet? Kenya, unfortunately, is using the refugees in this country as a bargaining chip. Currently, we know that the Kenyan government and Somalia are not in a good relationship. So whenever Kenya says it's doing this because of its national security, I think it's just uh, a way to justify their move to close the camp. This is more political than humanitarian. It's more political than national security. And in her reporting, Catherine says she's hearing that too. People here are just asking, well, is this just rhetoric? The government is again talking of security threats, but we also know there's a huge diplomatic row between Kenya and Somalia. And some people are saying that this is what it's about, about the tensions. These are long-running tensions over several issues. Somalia, for starters, has always accused Kenya of interfering in its international affairs, particularly in the Juberland region where the Kenyan forces are situated uh, under the African Union peacekeeping mission. Those accusations reached new heights in December of 2020 when the two countries cut diplomatic ties. And then there's a dispute playing out in recent weeks in front of the International Court of Justice. It's over an oil-rich territory between the two countries in the Indian Ocean. Somalia says that Kenya has been exploiting it. It belongs to Somalia, but Kenya is also claiming that uh, particular area. So Kenya also recently pulled out of that case with a lawyer saying that the judges are biased against Kenya. So a lot of problems there. We asked the Kenyan Interior Ministry to speak with us for this episode, but we didn't get a response before our deadline. Here's what Kenyan news sources have reported on the government's plans should the UNHCR fail to provide a roadmap to close the camps. The Kenyan government said that should uh, the UNHCR not come up with a plan within two weeks, they will simply evacuate refugees from the Dadaab and Kakuma refugee camps and place them on the Somalian border. But Catherine can't imagine that becoming a reality. It's difficult to see how that can happen in those camps. And um, specifically talking about Kakuma in northern Kenya, there are refugees from other countries as well. Kenya is also bound by international laws regarding refugees, and there are procedures and logistics because we are talking about hundreds of thousands of refugees. So I think busing them to the border is just out of the question. Molid also says it won't be easy for the UN to close the camps. It's logistically impossible to shut a complex facility that's been there for 30 years. It's not just the responsibility of the UN or even the Somali government. Kenya has a legal obligation to protect these refugees. And let me make clear that Kenya has been generous, but these days I think Kenya is just spoiling its track record and reputation as a generous host country. Whether Kenya wants to close or not, the fact is that refugees who live there do not want to stay there forever. 
they all want to go back to Somalia or to another place where they can get the freedom they need. Over the last several years, tens of thousands of refugees in Dadaab have taken part in a UN voluntary repatriation program meant to help refugees return to Somalia. Molit says that life in the camp has become so difficult that people feel pushed to leave. Even though the process is voluntary, still refugees will tell you that the conditions in the camp have become so difficult that they ended up signing up to this process. That repatriation process has been complicated for many of the people who take part in it. Some of them have reestablished their lives back home, but many of them ended up in internally displaced camps within Somalia. So they left a camp and ended up in another camp, which is more dangerous in terms of the security situation and with less uh, resources and less support that they used to get from the DAB. Some people have even returned to Dadaab after attempting to repatriate. But Molid says the threat of closure might push more people in Dadaab to sign up for the UN's repatriation program. And I think every time when Kenya says they will force people to go, you will see more people going to the UN asking for repatriation. So Kenya, I think, is using this to pressure refugees to agree to the so-called voluntary repatriation. So what does that mean now, in the coming weeks, as the refugees in Kenya face yet another threat of closure? Here's what Catherine had to say. I think how this will play out, and I could be wrong, is that the UN will submit its report asking for time, a lot of time. The government will perhaps give its own deadline for the plan to be implemented. And maybe even next year we'll be talking about the same issue. But what this does to the refugees is cause so much uncertainty, so much panic and fear. We saw this in 2016 and we're seeing it now. Modid, you have mentioned the uncertainty. And I feel like that is at the heart of this story that some people may gloss over in the headlines about Kenya and Somalia, the two governments. But regardless of what happens next, how does this constant threat of closure that's been going on for years affect people in the camp, especially those who've been there for their whole lives? This time, it's even worse because refugees have lost hope. Some of them will tell you, Let's just go back. We don't want even any repatriation. They should not keep saying this and, you know, disrupting our livelihoods, disrupting our businesses and also our mental well-being. So refugees are really confused and they're really in a very desperate situation now because of this uncertainty. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai with Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, Dina Kispe, May Alvarez, Priyanka Tilve, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back on Wednesday. <laughs>